Our scripture reading for this morning is Romans 12, verses 17 to 21. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, uh, Johnny and Hope, for leading us in prayer and in scripture reading. Uh, we are... Uh, on our last uh, message related to the series that we've been covering for a while now on confession and forgiveness. And in some ways, this message is sort of part two of last week's uh, message. There are certainly some unanswered questions perhaps from last week that'll get answered and uh, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to wrap things up, uh, maybe not answering every question that people have, but a lot of them. Uh, by the time we get to the end of this message. Uh, so far what we've seen, basically the framework is uh, that the Bible teaches that as sinners, what we need to do is we need to be honest about our sin. We need to own up to our sin. We need to admit our errors and shortcomings, and we need to seek forgiveness uh, for those sins and uh, through confession I, to God and to others. And uh, weeks ago, we, we spent several weeks unpacking that side of things. And then uh, recently, we've been talking about how we also, as followers of Jesus Christ, uh, must forgive those who repent. It's not an option to decide whether or not you want to forgive. If you love Jesus, you will be a forgiving person. Two weeks ago, we talked about kind of why that is as we looked at the uh, consequences, the danger of being an unforgiving person. And then last week, we talked about how we go about the process of forgiving another purpose. And at the end of that message, uh, we talked about how that the, the ultimate purpose of forgiveness is reconciliation. That God was reconciling us to himself through the gospel of Jesus Christ and that we are called to bring that ministry of reconciliation to the world, not just in calling others to be reconciled to God, but also to be reconciled to one another, particularly in the church. Um, and I want to use that as a, a segue into today's message because there's a couple of points from last week that I want to flesh out uh, that are relevant to what we're talking about this week as well. The first thing I want to flesh out and bring clarity to is the fact that um, we said last week uh, that forgiveness does not necessarily eliminate consequences. And neither do consequences rule out or prevent forgiveness. Uh, weeks and weeks ago when we were looking at confession, we saw this in the illustration that we uh, unpacked where uh, King David uh, had committed some very, very serious sins. He had committed adultery. He had also committed murder. And that's not just a sin, that's a crime. 
And he confessed those sins to God. His sin was pointed out to him. He was confronted by the prophet Nathan. He realized his sin. He confessed his sin before God. And God forgave the guilt of his sin. And yet, he still had to experience the consequence of his sin. And in that consequence, it was very, very severe. The child uh, that was conceived in that adulterous relationship ended up dying after that child was born. Now, We need to understand, friends, sometimes the consequences of our sin, even if we're forgiven, can be very, very severe, can be very, very serious, especially if the sin is very, very severe or serious. For example, what if the sin uh, is the result of an, an abusive act? The consequences might be that charges need to be laid or that jail time needs to be served. That does not mean that the victim uh, can't choose to forgive or has chosen not to forgive, nor does it mean that the, that the uh, victim need not forgive if the person has repented. But the consequence remains the same. Similarly, um, in marriage... Uh, The Bible allows for, uh, okay, let's say in a marriage uh, someone has committed adultery or one of the partners has deserted the other partner. The Bible allows for separation and even divorce in those circumstances. At least the innocent party is allowed to seek that, separation or divorce. Um, And those may be the consequences of the sinful, committed against the the innocent party. Now, again, that doesn't mean that forgiveness therefore can't happen or that forgiveness therefore won't happen. No, if the person has repented, forgiveness must happen. Nevertheless, those consequences may still exist even when you've been forgiven. And you might be uh, saying to yourself, well, okay, um, how does that fit, Paul, with what you said last week about reconciliation being the ultimate goal, that people reconcile? That's the purpose of forgiveness, confession and forgiveness in the first place. And that is true. That is what the gospel is about, about God reconciling us to himself and enabling us to be reconciled to one another. So absolutely, that is still true. However, remember, we said this last week, and let me emphasize again, Even though it's the same relationship, that doesn't mean that the relationship will be the same. When one person sins grievously and deeply against another person, that relationship may not be completely shattered and destroyed and therefore beyond any kind of repair at all, but it will never, ever, ever be the same. Take that marriage Uh, illustration that I just gave, for example. Let's say the offending party repents, truly repents, like we described weeks ago. So if you want to know what that looks like, you've got to go back to older sermons. I can't unpack all of that for you again today. Let's say the offender truly repents and the victim truly forgives that person. And maybe they even stay in the relationship, in the marriage, and they seek to rebuild it. You would say they're reconciled. Yes, They're reconciled, but that marriage will never be the same. 
the scars of the adultery will be carried on into the rest of that relationship. You can't just completely undo what's happened in the past. Now, that doesn't mean it's hopeless. Don't think to yourself, well, then what's the point of it all? Because we can never get it back. That's not what I'm saying. In fact, actually, even with the scars of that incredibly painful experience, people who have chosen the path of repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation, they can testify to the fact that the marriage has actually returned stronger and more beautiful for it. That is the story of my own parents, in fact, not the adultery part. But people who were in a very, very difficult time in their relationship and they chose to stay and to to live with it. It wasn't the same, but it was actually stronger and better for it. I just want to emphasize, there was no infidelity. And yet, there are times, friends, when the relationship may be too damaged and so separation happens. But in either case, the relationship is not the same. Here's the thing. All of what I've just said is predicated on the assumption that true confession and true repentance has happened. You see, there can really be no reconciliation, whatever that looks like, without repentance. Because without repentance, there can be no forgiveness. You're going to have to go back to a reminder again for what that true repentance looks like. But some of you might be bothered by hearing that that without true repentance, there can be no forgiveness. Because some of you maybe have been taught that you're always supposed to forgive people in any circumstances, even if they decide not to say sorry or not to repent or not to confess their sin and own up to it. You're obligated to uh, forgive them. But that's not what the Bible teaches, friends. There's a place in Luke 7 where Jesus uh, says to his disciples, they're asking him about forgiveness, and, and he says, if your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them, and if they repent, forgive them. Notice what he says. If they repent, you must forgive them. If they repent, you have an obligation to forgive them if they repent, but if they don't repent, you are not obligated to forgive And I know that people look to the cross and they say, well, wait a minute. What about what happened with Jesus on the cross? There Jesus was dying on the cross and he called out to the Father. He said, Father, forgive them, those people who are crucifying him and mocking him and shaming him and relishing in his death. He said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus forgave them. Not so fast. Jesus didn't forgive them when he was dying on the cross. Rather, he prayed that they would be forgiven. What he was taking was what theologians call a position of, a position of, positional forgiveness. In other words, Jesus was showing that he was ready to offer forgiveness freely. 
He wanted them to repent in order that they might be forgiven. You know the story of the prodigal son. It's a perfect illustration of this. In the story of the prodigal son, the younger son gets his inheritance. He takes off. He squanders it. He ruins his life. He comes to his senses, and he begins the journey home, hanging his head in shame to return to his father after all of his foolishness. And the story says that the father was waiting and saw his son from afar off, and he went running to him as as the son made his way closer to home. Do you see the father? was in in a position to forgive. He was ready to forgive. He was longing to forgive. He was prepared to forgive. He was seeking to forgive, you see. Jesus could have forgiven that mob in front of him, and he, he forgave people throughout his ministry. You'll remember that when the thief on the cross asked him to remember him, when he went into his kingdom, Jesus said, this day you will be with me in paradise. He forgave, forgave, forgave the thief on the cross right then and there. But here in this, Jesus, when Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing, what he's doing is, is he's, he's praying that one day they will be brought to repentance so that they might be forgiveness. Friends, reconciliation is a two-way street. There's two parties involved. And if, if there is no repentance, then there can't be forgiveness, even if you want to reconcile. Perhaps you're thinking to yourself, well, what on earth do you do then? What do you do when... There is no repentance. What do you do when people won't say sorry? When they won't admit their sin and they won't admit their, that they've hurt you, that they've betrayed you, that they've wronged you? What do you do? And the Bible's answer is this. You love them. You love them. And we're finally getting to the subject of this morning's message, we're going to look at what to do when someone won't say sorry and won't repent. There are three principles in this passage that we're going to look at on how to deal with those who will not repent. And the first one is, do not take revenge. Do not take revenge. In verse 17, it says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. In verse 19, it says, Do not take revenge, my friends. And then in verse 21, it says, Do not overcome evil by evil, but overcome evil with good. Here's the summary of, of this passage. Don't take revenge. Don't retaliate. See, revenge is an act to inflict harm or hurt on another person for what they have done to you. It's an act to inflict harm or hurt on another person for what they have done to you. It's about retaliation. It's about payback. It's not about reconciliation. It's about getting even, you see. And Paul says, don't do that. Resist the urge that you will have when someone won't repent to to get even with them and to pay them back for what they've done. And he gives two reasons for that. First of all, look at verse 19. He says, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. The first reason that we should not seek vengeance, we should not pay back, so to speak, is because repayment, that's God's job. 
God is the ultimate judge. You see, he is the only one who has perfect knowledge of everything. And because he has perfect knowledge of everything, he can mete out perfect judgment. You and I, we can't do that. We're incapable of that. Look, when you are hurt, whether it's minorly or deeply, (laughs) you think you know what the perpetrator, what the offender deserves. You lay awake at night on your bed and you replay the story in your mind and you think, you know what, this is what they need. They need this to happen to them. They need to be taken, they need to be taken down a notch. They need to be undressed. They need to, someone to put them in their place. They need to be given what for. Do you follow what I'm saying? But the reality is, the truth is, you don't really know what they need and what they deserve. You don't know what brought them to the place where they did the things they did. You don't know what their childhood was like, what kind of experiences they've had that have shaped them into the kind of person that did the kind of thing that they did. You don't know all the comprehensive history that goes into the complicated person who hurt you or offended you. You know, there's a place, I'm going to use Lord of the Rings a bit because Lord of the Rings is really good at all this stuff, okay? There's a place in Fellowship of the Ring where Gandalf could have killed Gollum, this nasty character, And he didn't. And he's going through the mines of Moria, leading the fellowship through those mines. And at one point, they're sitting there taking a rest. And and he's speaking with Frodo. Gandalf is speaking with Frodo. And Frodo kind of uh, laments the fact that Gandalf didn't take the chance to just kill Gollum, put him out of his misery, and get him out of their lives. And Gandalf responds with these words. He says, many that live deserve death. And some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them? Then do not be too eager to deal out death in judgment, for even the very wise cannot see all things. We cannot see all things. We don't know exactly what a person deserves. And when we seek revenge, oftentimes we behave like the Hatfield and the McCoys. We one-up each other. They hit us, we hit them harder. Then they hit us harder, then we hit them harder. And it escalates. And that leads to the second reason. If you seek revenge, you become evil yourself because you get sucked into the cycle. Look at verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That word overcome, it is is a military term that Paul uses there. And it means to overpower. It means to defeat. And what he's saying is, is that if you use evil, which is revenge, to to overcome evil, you will be overcome by evil. Again, Lord of the Rings, sorry. But the whole Lord of the Rings trilogy is all about this one ring, right? The one ring. And this ring was forged by Sauron, an evil lord, and it had tremendous power. And and whoever possesses that ring, they will have tremendous power to wield its power and their power, and therefore they would rule the world. The problem is, is that when you use that ring, when you wear that ring, it turns you evil. It makes you evil. 
Evil cannot be used against itself because you become like the very thing you're trying to defeat. If you don't like Lord of the Rings, I'll give you a different reference. I think this movie was from the 80s or 90s, so most of you, it's, for most of you, it's ancient history, but there's this phenomenal movie called uh, The Untouchables. And it's about Al Capone. You know, Al Capone, the 1920s Chicago mob boss. And it's about the cops trying to get him. And there's this detective who really wants to get Capone and put him in jail. And there's this constable who, who's trying to uh, advise him on how to do that. And he says this to the, to the young detective, this old grizzled constable. He says, you want to get Capone? Here's how you get him. When he pulls a knife, you pull a gun. When he sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way, and that's how you get Capone. But do you see? It's trying to overcome evil with evil. And Paul is saying here that only good ultimately will defeat evil. This is point number two. So don't seek revenge because evil cannot be defeated by evil. It can only defeated by, be defeated by good. Therefore, point number two, will their good. It's not enough to just not hit back. It's not enough to just be passive. Lots of passive aggression out there, okay? You need to be proactive. Look at verse 17. It says, do not repay anyone for evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. And then in verse 20, it says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, first of all, Paul says, be careful. What he means by that is, think, consider. What's the best way to handle this? What's the best way to deal with this person in order that, that I can bring about their good? What? Look at verse 20. Your enemy is hungry, feed him. Thirsty, give him something to drink. That's doing good. That's seeking the welfare of your enemy. You have to consider what is best for them and then in, in whatever way you are able to, make that happen. And you might say, well, that's ridiculous. Come on. I mean, that's, that's completely over the top. Where are you getting this from, Paul? But listen, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, he says, love your enemies, Pray for those who persecute you. Now, what, what do you pray for those who are persecuting you? People who are persecuting you are obviously your enemies. You're supposed to love them. What do you pray for a person like that? You pray that they will get hit by a bus? Of course not. That's not praying for their good. That's not loving them. Of course not. You will their good. You seek what is best for them. Why? Well, Paul says, in doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Now, <laughs> you might be reading this. I, when I was a kid, I would read this. I'd be like, yeah, be good to them. And somehow then, then you're actually smoking them. That's not what Paul means here. What he means is, is that verse 20, feeding your enemy when they're hungry, giving them something to drink when they're thirsty, actually accomplishes verse 21, which is overcoming evil with good. Let me explain how this works. 
you have to picture an ancient city, walled city, where marauders are coming to attack the city. And what do you do? Well, you climb up onto the wall, all the people who live in the city, you climb up onto the wall, and as they were coming up the wall trying to get into your city and attack you, you would pour boiling oil on their heads, or while they were on the, on the ground, you would fire flaming arrows at them in order to stop them from advancing and taking you over. What you were doing, essentially, was you were beating back their attack. And what Paul is saying is that when you fight evil with good, you are beating back its attack. You are bringing about their retreat. You are leading them one more step towards repentance. You see, if your goal with the person who will not repent is that they would actually come to repentance so that you can forgive them, so that the two of you can somehow and in some way be reconciled, well, then this is the path that you want to take. Who has ever repented because of retaliation? I'm not saying don't confront them, okay? Remember, what did Jesus say? If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them their sin. Sometimes... You have to confront in order to foster the repentance that you want to see. Look, sometimes when Jessica hurts me, does something that upsets me, I have a tendency to give her the cold shoulder, clam up, be quiet, right? And somehow you're, you're radiating coldness as you walk by. Doors close a little harder. You breathe a little heavier like you huff and puff a little more, maybe your footsteps are a little uh, heavier, and all the while you're not looking at them and you're not saying anything into, to them. Now, in all the times, I can promise you, in all the times that I've done this with Jessica, she has never once come up to me and said, your cold shoulder has demonstrated to me, Paul, that I have hurt you by what I said or what I did earlier, and I am now just coming here to confess it to you and say sorry. Go figure. It doesn't work. It never works. That's why Paul says, overcome evil with good. That's why Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, listen. <laughs> I hope you are thinking, yeah, 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 I guess you got to preach that, preacher. But it's not very realistic. Things like that don't happen in the real world. Well, that's absolutely not true. I gave you an example last week uh, or the week before. I don't know. But the young man who was shot and his brother forgave the murderer in the courtroom could tell you about the Amish community that had five of its young girls killed by a, a, a mass shooter and they chose to uh, love their enemy rather than um, seek revenge. But I, I'm, really, re I'm willing and ready to admit that this is very demanding, for sure. You know, Jesus was the first one to say, love your enemies, eh? 
everybody said, love those who are, who, you know, who repent and all that kind of stuff and love your family and love your neighbor as yourself. There are other uh, religious leaders of other religions who said very, very similar things. Jesus is the only one who said, oh, and by the way, love your enemies too. That's Christianity. Christianity, you see, the reason is, is because Christianity is a supernatural religion. It's founded on a supernatural God. It was lived and personified and accomplished by a supernatural person, Jesus, 100% man and 100% divine. And it's founded upon him. And therefore, in order to, to live out these kinds of commands, we desperately need supernatural power. And that leads us to the third point. Remember, remember, remember the perfect judge. You know... Verse 19 is unbelievable. Where, you know, it says, leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay. God says, it is mine to avenge. In other words, I'm going to put everything right. I know that we have an a, a earthly justice system to do that, uh, when, when crimes are committed, it doesn't deal with every hurt and slight that someone has uh, caused against you, but it deals with major crimes that are, are obviously extremely dan damaging. And yes, we do have a justice system on earth, but we all know that that justice system isn't perfect either. It screws up a lot. It gets it wrong a lot. Sometimes the prison term is too short. Sometimes the prison term is too long and, and everything in between. In this world, listen... In this world, you will not find perfect justice anywhere, even in the church, friends. Hopefully, you get closer to real biblical justice in the church, but you will never get perfect justice in this life. It will always fall short. But God promises here, listen, justice delayed is not justice denied. You know, um, when I was at my last church, we sponsored a refugee family from Myanmar, Burma. And they were Karen Christians. And what happened was, was there was religious and ethnic tension in that country and, and persecution by one religion and ethnicity over against another one. And so another group came in and forced them out of their village into the jungle burned their village to the ground, chased them through the jungle, and they escaped to Thailand where they spent 10 years living in a refugee camp before we were able to bring them to Canada. And they went to our church and were part of our community. And I remember talking to the father who didn't know much English, hardly any at all. This is after a couple of years of being with us. And trying to talk through, so how do you deal with the anger that you must feel against these enemies? And one of the things he said, I'll never forget, he says, God, perfect judge. God, perfect judge. See, what enabled him not to seek vengeance and not seethe with anger at the injustice that was perpetrated against him, what enabled him not to seek the Chicago way, to turn from the very evil 
that had attacked him was to find comfort that God's a perfect judge. You've got to remember that. And then the second thing is, is you've got to read these words. God says, it is mine to avenge. I will repay. You've got to read these words in light of the cross of Jesus Christ. Romans 12 begins with these words. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, da, 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 da. The context for everything else that Paul writes in Romans 12 is in view of God's mercy. That's the context of verse 19. See, in light of the cross, verse 19, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. What it means is, is that God, through Jesus Christ, he took it and he paid. He meted out the justice, but he also took the payment for you and for me and for that person. If they, their problem is, is they just won't embrace that grace, but you, as someone who has embraced that grace, you look to the cross and you can say, wow, I deserved his justice. I deserved that wrath. I deserved punishment for my sin. And God said, I'll pay through the death of his son. Now, friends, as that sinks into you, as these things, as you, as that sinks into you, and as you practice these things, not things, 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 not taking revenge, seeking their good, remembering the perfect judge that is God. You can love the unrepentant in a way that is for their good, which may mean tough love. <laughs> it may mean tough love, but it is for their good because you can seek their repentance and offer forgiveness and find reconciliation too. These are big things, guys. Big things. Oh, but if the world, if we and the world would practice this, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. But real love, hard love, sacrificial love, the love of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we would embrace it, what would happen to this world? I can only imagine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, make us people of love, who seek the well-being of others, even of our enemies. Lord, may the world see in us a supernatural grace so that they would ask, where does that come from? And we could say, it comes from you and you alone, that you might be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.